The Balance and Falls Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, a component of the American Physical Therapy Association, is bringing you this podcast. This is for informational and educational purposes only. It does not constitute and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, rehabilitation, or treatment. Patients and other members of the general public should always seek the advice of a qualified healthcare professional regarding personal health and medical conditions. The Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy and its collaborators disclaim any liability to any party for any loss or damage by errors or omissions in this publication. The views or opinions expressed are those of the individual creators and do not necessarily represent the position of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. I will be your host. My name is Marissa Lyon. I am a physical therapist in Portland, Maine, an assistant professor at the University of New England, and on the nominating committee of the Balance and Falls Special Interest Group. Today, we have the privilege of hosting a distinguished guest, Sarah Oxborough, whose recent paper titled Addressing Opportunities and Barriers in Telehealth Neurologic Physical Therapy, Strategies to Advance Practice, and the recent publications on the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy website have piqued my interest and have highlighted an emerging conversation in the field of neurological rehabilitation. Sarah currently works at M Health Fairview as part of the ENT department. She serves as an adjunct faculty at the University of Minnesota, as well as at Augustana University. Sarah treats a wide range of vestibular disorders and balance impairments, especially concussion and vestibular migraine. Sarah recently joined Vestibular First as their director of education. She has been part of the Vestibular Special Interest Group leadership since 2010. She currently served on the ANPT Telehealth Task Force and previously served on the Minnesota APTA Telehealth Task Force. Sarah has co-authored many studies regarding vestibular rehabilitation and has presented multiple times at CSM and state and local conferences. So Sarah, you served on the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy Telehealth Task Force, as I mentioned, with Sarah Gallagher, Hina Garg, Brittany Kennedy, Ava Perron, Gregory Thielman, and Ching Zheng. Uh, in March of this year, the task force was selected by the ANPT Practice Committee. So you, you joined it in 2021 and have been working for the last couple of years pretty diligently, it sounds like. Um, and we're now starting to see the fruits of many of your labor. Work of this task force was to review and synthesize evidence in the area of physical therapy assessment and treatment of individuals with neurologic conditions using electronic communication. Um, did I get all of that right or anything that you'd like to add to the listeners of the podcast? No, that sounds great. That was a great introduction. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much for joining me. So my first question is about this task force. Um, what made you interested in applying for and then ultimately deciding to participate in this task force with all of these individuals? So starting in, I think it was 2017, uh, I, I think the clinic I worked at then were located in Minneapolis and we would have patients coming from all over the state and all over the Midwest coming for specific workups uh, for their vestibular conditions. And we'd send them back home. And just because vestibular is such a specialty, it was really hard to get good quality care. So they'd come back to us. They weren't feeling better. Uh, and we we're I was trying to find a way to get these people the good quality care that they needed. 
And I happened to meet Sarah Gallagher at that time who had started to do telerehabilitation in Denver. And she was doing it for people that were living up in the mountains and could drive down. And through talking with her, that's how I really got interested in being able to access a wider range of where I could offer patients good quality vestibular rehab. So as you mentioned, I linked up with some folks in the Twin Cities who also had the same interest. And we were supported by the Minnesota chapter of APTA to look into this and see, you know, what does our state practice act say? What could we do? Could we bill? And that's where it all started. And so around 2018, we started seeing patients at my clinic via via telehealth and started billing it. And it all worked really, really well. So in 2020, yeah, it was really, it was fun to kind of be ahead of the game. Uh, Even in 2019, we had a group of us that presented at CSM uh, treating vestibular disorders using telerehabilitation. And what was cool is like the room was packed. So there's obviously an interest in it even before 2020 hit. So I had a big passion for it. Luckily, when that all hit in 2020, we had a very easy time flipping everybody over to virtual visits. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's been cool. It's been a passion of mine since then. And then when this opportunity came up, I just really wanted to make sure first that there was kind of clinician representation in the group and that vestibular, of course, had a seat at the table because that's a passion of mine. Nice. That's good. Yeah. So um, you you mentioned before the recording started that the task force was made up of people from different areas of physical therapy. So kind of different academic leadership clinician, and you kind of represented the area of clinicians. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. That's my background. I've been treating uh, vestibular disorders since I graduated 16 years ago. And I continue to do so but with a little bit of academia now mixed in in my adjunct positions. Yeah, it's always fun to, to mix it up a little bit. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> the, the one thing that I, I really like that you mentioned when you were kind of talking about what brought you to telehealth was the role in serving people with limited access. Um, as someone working in, in Maine, which is uh, an incredibly rural state, you know, Minnesota and Colorado, you mentioned, are both kind of in the middle of urbanized rural, but um, I think that that's, that's really kind of an interesting thing that I've thought about, and that's probably some of our, our listeners have thought about, is the role of telehealth and improving access. How do we get better access to people that, mm-hmm. that can't get to the cool, special, fancy clinic um, if they have a, a specific condition that they need, they need service for? Definitely. I think that's, yeah, like you said, here Colorado, so many parts of the nation, um, We have a huge rural population and a lot of the therapists have to kind of be jack of all trades and they do a great job at doing that. But when it comes to maybe more specific conditions or people who aren't just getting better, it's a way to, I think, offer them a little bit more. And what I really liked at our clinic, and I still do this at the clinic met now, is we'll often try to see people for their evaluation, at least in person. So at least if we can get them to come into the clinic and then we can offer virtual sessions going forward. And I think that just provides a really nice model to provide high quality care, to get access to those communities that may not otherwise have it, like you said. Yeah, I really like that. That's a model that I've seen pop up in areas like pelvic health as well. Um, It seems to, I think, make probably the clinicians and the patients feel a little bit better is Mm -hmm. doing their evaluations, sometimes some reevaluations in person. So you have that 
that personal connection and you see the movements that you want to see, but, but like significantly reduce the burden of time and travel and all of that. Yeah, for sure. Um, that that's great. Thanks for sharing your experience in telehealth. I'll probably ask you a few more questions about that since I, I haven't done a ton of it. Um, I transitioned okay. to academia in 2019. Um, and it was just something that I was, was working in neurologic. So mostly stroke, spinal cord injury, brain injury. Um, I did okay. do a fair amount of vestibular, but where I was working, we didn't do a ton in Texas. Okay. Um, and so I think I was kind of transitioning around the time that you guys were a little early, you kind of earlier adopters. And so that's, it's really interesting to hear about it's on the ground implementation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so my first question is in, in the review. So the, the published article in the journal of neurologic physical therapy, um, you, you guys reviewed some of the specific evidence about implementing telehealth. And a lot of the articles that you, you took a look at included the interventions of health coaching, implementation of a home exercise program, and caregiver-mediated training. Um, from my perspective, this, I think, could be re related to balanced training. Do you see anything during review that specifically discuss that a specific construct of training? You know, my interest is really in the area of balanced training, or was it generally fairly fairly general in the in those areas? Well, I think it was kind of all over the place, um, <laughs> and a lot of the articles didn't give a ton of specifics. What's interesting to look back is a lot of the articles prior to 2021, when we didn't know we'd be doing so much tele-rehab, looked at a lot of kind of pre-designed exercise programs and gamified training. So including some balance in that. But when I think of working with the patient, I'm really wanting to be specific to what their impairments are. And I think the, the research before then didn't have as much of that. Um, when we look at caregiver training, especially that's come a lot about more recently, and we'll talk about this in our traffic toolkit, that allows us to do a lot of the same training that we do in person. And therefore, I think we can do a lot more with balance if we have that caregiver there. So in some of the articles that we have, and I'll say we have summary sheets that are available on our website on the Neuro Telehealth page that talk about these specific uh, studies that I'm mentioning, they don't go into real specific detail about exactly what treatments they did. Uh, but for Parkinson's disease, we had some studies that looked at sensory integration. So one of the studies they did list specifically, they did weight shifting, trunk twisting, eyes closed, unstable surfaces, which sensory integration is my favorite type of balance therapy. Nice. Uh, there was a study in 2021 with MS and they did a range of all of it, stretching, <laughs> strengthening, but they did also include some basic single leg stance, some tandem posturing, and some weight shifting. So it it seems that there's kind of a mix of things. One interesting study that I was just kind of reviewing earlier today, and thought, gosh, how that'd be cool to get my patients doing. They had, <laughs> they had uh, participants following like an on-screen avatar, and the patients had to mimic what this avatar was doing. And so they were doing these forward step, forward lunges which I like to do for so many diagnoses, single leg stance, and then aspects of Tai Chi, which we know involve a lot of weight shifting. That study was cool because they actually showed really good improvements in the Berg and the Tug. Oh, nice. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. So like all that to say, there's quite a variety, but many things that were included are traditionally things we do in, in clinic. Um, 
just not a ton of like, here's a specific balance exercises that we did, but there's so much more coming out now. And yeah. I think we're going to see a lot more like specific, we just did balance or we just did um, walking programs. And I think that we'll be seeing a little bit more coming out pretty soon. Yeah. So to orient people to what you're talking about, if someone goes to neuropt.org, they click on practice resources under best practice initiatives and resources. There's a neuro telehealth section. You click on that. There's a whole knowledge translation toolkit, statement of support, clinician resources, patient resources, stuff about um, KT to practice setting. So a number of different resources that your task force has put together in addition to the article that was recently published. So um, that's, that's what you're referencing there. Yeah, and that's a great, so what we ended up doing, we looked at all the research and the most research was in stroke MS and Parkinson's. So we put sheets together, um, evidence, uh, summary sheets for those diagnoses. There wasn't as much for, let's say ALS and sadly for vestibular rehab, but I know oh. that's coming. Um, so that's why we went with those three diagnoses, those summary sheets, because that's where the most available evidence was there's a lot being done on stroke prior to the pandemic. Um, there really wasn't anything on vestibular rehab before the pandemic. So interesting. Um, and you'll see when you look at the studies, it ranges, I think, as far back as I can't recall 2013 up until 2022. Right. And then um, in the published article in the, I didn't mention which um, edition this was in, but I think it was, was it the most recent edition of JNPT? Um, that are October 2023. Yeah, your paper. Yes. All of that, um, those summaries of the evidence was under objective one. So you kind of scroll down if you're reading the paper online or if you're you're looking at it in the in the journal. Under objective one, there's a, a whole chart that summarizes the articles you guys looked at. And then there's a section for stroke, Parkinson's, and MS, and then other. So that kind of is is consistent with what you're saying that there was a you know a <laughs> number of references related to stroke, a couple, a few on Mark Parkinson's and MS, and then really um, kind of an other section, which, which did, you know, didn't have a lot of vestibular, what you're interested in. And, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, but it's coming. It'll go. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of, after that section, I found that it was interesting in this article, the next thing you guys talked about was the mobile-based applications. That's something that I found, found kind of interesting kind of in the realm of, kind of digital health. Um, so I found it also really interesting, the ones that were specifically focused on outcomes assessment. Um, so if anyone hasn't reviewed these materials, I definitely take, recommend you take a look at it. There's a summary of the different available applications on the website as well. So Sarah, can you share with me um, what role you could see these apps playing in the management of fall risk of our patients? So you've probably looked at these apps in greater detail than I have through reviewing these materials um, kind of fairly shortly. Yeah, apps, apps were a, a tricky thing. We weren't sure when we were starting out the task force and first setting out our goals, we had a lot of discussion about do we, you know, are apps included? Like, is this part of tele-rehab? Mm -hmm. And by the time we were done, I think we ended with apps certainly have a place, whether it's in-person or virtual, um, but that the, there's not a ton of great options. And when we set out again, we were going to review apps and make these recommendations. But what we found is apps change so often. Like, for example, one of the two of the members on our team presented at the ANPT annual conference on some of this work they had done with apps. And they had to include a disclaimer that already one of the apps is no longer available. 
So oh. it's just to show, well, these apps are here now, but in this paper, next year, they may not be available. So what we wanted to come out of this is we should think about apps, but we should also make sure we're kind of critically reviewing what apps we're using. And there is something called the, the Mars, which helps to evaluate that. And in some of our summary sheets on the website, we give these ratings to these different apps. So the task force isn't going to be around forever. We're not going to be there to review new apps as they come out and they're going to come out. But overall, people should be aware that apps exist and that we can use them, um, but they're going to be changing. So some of what was interesting to me is when we were, when it was all said and done, some of the top treatment apps were actually just heart rate monitor apps. So it just goes to show you that. <laughs> There wasn't a lot. Heart rate monitor is great, um, but there, you know, there's things like IMAV, which is gives vestibular exercises for people with mm-hmm. vertigo for, with vestibular migraine, and it's not really individualized, so not a super great app. Um, the BPPV treatment app could be good if people need at-home maneuvers. You had mentioned interest in assessment and outcomes, and the two apps that kind of got our top ranking where this PO Comet and this iWalk Assess. Mm-hmm. And they're great. I really could see them using them in clinic quite a bit um, uh-huh. to kind of track and jot down scores and give you norms, like as you're walking around with your patient, doing a six-minute walk test or the 10-meter walk test. Um, but they aren't they aren't really designed to be like apps that a people a person might use at home. They certainly could. They have to know how to set up their distance for... 10 meters and for a six minute walk test. So, right. well, they could be used at home. You know, you could also use a timer for us, you know, the six, the six minute walk test. Um, yes. Certainly tax heavy patients, I think could use some of these outcome and assessments, but in the end, it was really interesting to see which apps got the best scores and they weren't necessarily ones that would enhance the telehealth experience, in my opinion. Interesting. Yeah. I was kind of thinking, oh, it would be so nice if someone could like do their tug every couple of months, say a person with a a degenerative chronic condition, and then notice when it's getting lower. Okay. It's time to go in and see my PT, but we're assuming some level of physical capacity to set up a walkway, intellectual, cognitive capacity to measure it out and all that. And so there's, you really have to train someone on it and then um, make sure that they really can do it well. So yeah, maybe someone in a rural setting that doesn't have access, but probably still looking at, that's a really great person to bring in every six months anyway. But Um, that's not a bad idea. I hadn't really thought about that. I kind of had thought about it in the context of like, we're having these visits and while we're on the virtual visit, you know, you might set up your tug and do it, but that's a really good idea to think about, you know, sending once we're done with therapy, whatever type we see them in. Yeah. All right, you know where this um, 10 foot walkway is. Why don't you do this from time to time and just see what your score is? That's kind of what I was thinking would maybe be a, yeah, not when they're engaged in active telehealth. This is kind of like an off time kind of thing. An off time. Yeah. Which could be used no matter what medium you're but seeing. Again, there. yes. You would need to be using your clinical reasoning to see, are they able to actually do it correctly? And <laughs> yeah. that they're, yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, I think I think the apps are, are kind of an interesting addition. It was kind of, it's interesting to hear from you that they potentially have a better opportunity to add more to the in-person visit than potentially the telehealth visit. Um, yeah. Just- and I think there's, you know, one thing that I had to do a lot of right when March of 2020 hit was um, 
treating people for BPPV virtually, which isn't something I really like to do. And so we were taking cell phones and holding them up to eyes while people were, you know, pulling them back off the edge of their bed. Um, so in my practice, it'd be really cool to have some kind of app that maybe could record eye movements and for people who have dizzy spells, things like that. I don't know. That's necessarily virtual, but um, yeah. perhaps someday there'll be something like that where we could do ocular motor assessments or yeah, like kind of balance assessment. Um, the virtual reality goggles where you put the phone in, but like turn it around so the camera's recording their eyes. Like yeah, that that would be cool. That would be cool. Yeah. Um, so one of the documents that you you all came up with, and you already mentioned this, is this this traffic light toolkit or a flow sheet, and uh, that came out of a lot of your work. And for those who haven't reviewed it, would you be willing to walk through how the flow sheet can be used for clinicians considering incorporating telehealth and just kind of give a very basic description of what it looks like since this is not a visual medium, but it's <laughs> a, kind of a, an eight and a half, half by 11 sheet of paper. And we've got a bit of an algorithm with maybe kind of four to five different steps where at each step it takes you to either a green or a red light, sometimes a yellow light to make a decision about what to do next. Yeah. So the traffic toolkit, I think, like you mentioned, is a, something that was, we worked, a lot of people worked on really hard and was a really cool feature that came out of this task force. It was started right away. And uh, you, I haven't mentioned yet, but we're going to have a course that'll be published pretty soon on the education center. And it, the telehealth, uh, the traffic light is incorporated with that as well to see how you can really use it in real time. So essentially, it's a flow sheet that helps a clinician decide if telehealth is appropriate for their patient. Okay. So they're screened for access to technology, which they must have, um, consent to do their visit over telehealth, cognition, access to supportive resources, and mobility level. So it can be determined if we should have in-person visits or telehealth visits. We also use the traffic light for outcome measures. So, you know, what are appropriate outcome measures for our patients that are be, being seen via telehealth? So we also applied it to like green, good, you should use this measure. You don't have to modify, you know, anybody can use it, it's free. Or yellow, you may have to make some modifications to this um, outcome measure that you're using. And then red is, nope, you shouldn't be doing this with that, with those patients. Um, so it, it really goes through, I'll give you just a couple of examples, you know, feasibility and consent, that should be a simple yes or no, or red or green. We assess safety. So here, like in an example of red light, meaning we shouldn't be doing the visit virtually, would be someone who requires physical assist. Uh, something you'd think as a no-brainer, but sometimes it's just nice to look through and think about those tough patients you aren't sure if you should see them virtually or not. Uh, but if you have a caregiver, then we decided, well, that would make it yellow, which is we can proceed with caution. So we could still do it. We just have to be a little more cautious in how we conduct this session. Uh, and we would probably ask to have somebody around them uh, or keep their exercises at a more basic level. Mm -hmm. And then cognitive status, of course, we've kind of touched on that a little bit. There are we do have a traffic light for cognitive measures that a therapist could use if they're not sure the level of the patient's cognitive status. There's an online um, free to use the BCAT. I haven't used it too much, but it's an assessment that could be used to screen patients and uh, there's no modifications needed to use it. So any of us could use it. 
And if there is a cognitive impairment, it doesn't mean we can't do telehealth. We just might want a caregiver present. And that would kind of turn the light from yellow to green. And then most importantly, mobility and patient goals. Like what does the patient want out of therapy and making sure that we can accomplish that via telehealth. So that's kind of the last, the last step in the telehealth traffic light. And you'll hear us talk a lot about, I mean, really the big takeaway is a caregiver makes a lot of this easier and we can move ahead almost always unless there's maybe internet issues or they don't consent. Yeah. I see on here that the things that kick someone out of, of the, into the no is um, working bottom to top is care partner not present, care partner not present. <laughs> yes. Medical red flags, but some of those red flags can be turn it into a yellow if there's a care partner there. Um, and then, like you said, if they decline or they don't have the technology available. So it it really does seem like the biggest reasons why someone wouldn't do physical therapy through telehealth if they have a neurologic condition is just if they've got a combination of yellow flag with no care partner or yeah. it's not someone around. That's pretty much it. Like you can do quite a lot. It's nice to have the caregiver. Right. Uh, and this, we also have kind of a quick and easy version on the website, just a quick checklist. So if you don't want to follow this uh, whole model all the way down, there's kind of this quick yes or no checklist you could print off and just have with you in the clinic um, things to keep in mind. And so that's a resource on the website as well. I see that. Nice. That's really great. Um, <clears throat> I think that kind of flows pretty well into my next question, which is that you know, one of the big things that um, you know, many of us will be going to CSM soon, attend conferences throughout the year, go to go to continuing education. And um, one of the big topics in the last couple of years is, is high intensity. So yeah. the role of ensuring that we're not underdosing our patients, that we're working them at a high enough intensity. And I can imagine um, when I, I've seen in conversation with people that some clinicians are concerned about prescribing high intensity, especially high intensity balance training mm. from a distance. Um, without the capacity to provide physical assistance themselves. Do you have any thoughts on that? So when we when we started doing this at my clinic in 2018, we came up with these guidelines on our own because nothing existed. And we said, well, if people are at a fall risk, like we're not going to see them over telehealth. And that was that. But then the pandemic came and we had to throw that out the window because either it was they were going to get care uh, or they weren't. If if we couldn't do it virtually. Right. Um, so that's when caregiver assistance started coming in. The other thing we did, and this was probably for a lot of this stuff on higher intensity was coming out, was actually maybe lowering our intensity a little bit just to make sure that they would be safe. You know, we certainly have to have some error to drive change, but that error was probably a little bit lower. But again, in our minds around that pandemic time, it was, well, the alternative is no treatment. Yeah. Um, and some of the arguments that are made now is, you know, maybe we're not doing as much high intensity, but we might be able to reach people more often via telehealth than them coming into clinic. Again, we've talked about people in rural settings, perhaps people that don't have rides or means to get there. So we may be able to offer more frequent visits and, and I guess higher intensity in that way. Mm -hmm. uh, in the study I was looking at, in 2021, it was really interesting because I was kind of curious to see like, what are people doing now with fall risk patients? So there's this, it was a small study, it was only 10 people, but it was a rural area and it, they were looking at folks with Parkinson's disease and they actually wanted them to be at a risk for falling. 
to participate and they did not require a caregiver and they tailored their exercises to their impairment level. What was interesting is, so not actually during the sessions, but during the course of them participating in the therapy, 40% of patients fell, had a fall, but these were fallers already. They were were already statistically likely to fall. So yes, so they had another fall, but none of them fell during their virtual sessions. Hmm. Uh, So that's kind of cool. A small study again, but perhaps to say maybe our sessions are safer than what they're doing outside of therapy. And that (laughs) we can say balance was practiced with no adverse effects in people who do fall regularly. So small study, but every participant finished the study. And again, these are people that otherwise would not have had any therapy at all. Right. One thing that, so when I'm working with patients, the things I always do to maximize safety is have them perform on a solid floor versus um, like a carpet surface. We always do our exercises in the corner so that if they do tip, they have something behind them. And then oftentimes, not always, but a solid chair in front are ways we can try to work around it if we maybe don't have a caregiver. So kind of switching gears a little bit, telehealth has a lot of potential barriers as um, the the title of this article mentions, um, connectivity, access to technology um, are, are two that, that I can think of. So how have you seen, again, experience and literature, these challenges be addressed to ensure as much equitable access for patients as possible? So one thing that was kind of cool that we found out about during the task force is, um, the government has something called the Affordable Connectivity Program. Have you ever heard of that? No, I saw it on the website and I that was the first time I had heard of yeah. it. Yeah, I hadn't really actually heard about it all because I hadn't run into, honestly had not run into that as a barrier as far as like internet connectivity when I had worked with my patients since 2018. But so there is a website, um, it's fcc.gov backslash ACP. And patients can look to see if they qualify for internet services. So I think that's really cool. Um, we I've had a couple patients who have gone over to family members' houses who maybe didn't have the best internet. So they've been able to find somebody who has a little bit better or they're in a rural area, but they can drive into town where connectivity is a little bit better. I guess yeah. I'll say that it's really rare now at least in my opinion, that someone doesn't have a cell phone, so you don't have necessarily even need internet, just cell phone coverage, and that's really all you need to do telehealth, and that's what most people are using. Right. Um, and it's actually, I prefer it over a computer because I can move with them in their environment, and they can set the phone up if I need a long hallway to see them walking or things like that. Um, yeah. So, I like, I like yeah. the kind of creative solution there of, of the people who don't have as good access, especially for video buffering or whatever going, you know, maybe they don't go all the way into your clinic, but they go into town just a little bit and there's someplace they can go there or to a family's house. And then the information about this affordable connectivity program is really helpful as well. Yeah. I think that should hopefully help with, with increasing access to it, but there's so many places now with free Wi-Fi now, whether you want to go do your balance therapy session in that place, maybe it's more debatable. <laughs> Um, but at least with cell phone coverage, it's, I think either a lot of people have smartphones or you, or know someone that has one. Um, I'm, there's certainly going to be cases where we, we can't get it with all those measures in place. Um, 
but I think we're our society is set up where we have pretty good access to all of that. Yeah. Any other barriers that um, big ones that you think are worth mentioning that you reviewed in working with this uh, this literature and this this population? I can't think of any more offhand. I mean, when I was reviewing some of the literature, they talked about one of the studies, and I can't recall which one offhand was talking about uh, during the sessions, like errors that you know technology errors that came to be during the sessions, like where they would lose connectivity during it, or that you know, things weren't as good or choppy or not as clear. And it's really important for the patient first and foremost, but also for billing purposes that you can see the person clearly that you're working with. But in the study, they were able to resolve all of those issues during the session. Um, I've had to get creative a couple of times where I could maybe see the person, but couldn't hear them. Probably user error on one end. So we quick jump on the phone. So at least we have that phone call touch base. Um, but to to build telehealth codes, you have to be able to see them. There's been a couple of times where I couldn't see them anymore and I've had to end the session and just get on the phone call with them and wrap it up that way. Mm-hmm. It's not billable time uh, unless you can see them, but at least we can wrap up the program and then try again for next time. Um, that's interesting. I didn't realize that you're required to be able to see them for telehealth. So that's actually really useful information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So another thing that was mentioned in the article is the role of virtual reality within telehealth interventions. Um, How do you see immersive technologies like VR contributing potentially to enhancing balance training outcomes, particularly for people with neurologic conditions? Yeah, so reviewing the literature for this study, for this uh, task force, um, a lot of it was not necessarily, well, they called it VR, but when you look at it, it's it's the Wii Fit, it's Xbox. So I suppose that's VR, but VR as we know it now, you know, where you put the goggles on and you're complete, completely immersed is a little bit different than mm-hmm. some of the earlier studies. Um, it was kind of cool. There was a study and with Parkinson's from 2017, a larger one actually, because a lot of our studies had real small participants with right. 76 patients. They were doing the Wii Fit, um, just doing it 50 minutes, three times a week. And had had similar improvements to people that came into the clinic in regards to number of falls and the Berg. So they each did 21 sessions. And so, I don't know, I think that just kind of goes to show, if you think about some of our patients who really just, I'll have some patients say, you know, I just don't want to do, I don't do exercises. That's not for me. Like, I'm going to tell you right away, I'm not going to do the home program. But gosh, if we put people on a Wii Fit, which is just kind of fun and gamified, and they had the same outcomes as people who came in and did sessions, right. I think perhaps that's where we're going to see maybe this game gamification of vestibular rehab going and virtual reality going in the future to maybe make, to perhaps increase compliance is what I'm thinking. We just got a VR system at our outpatient neural clinic. It's just being implemented. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how they're going to use that. Um, one thing that I we have a Burtech balance system where I work at. So it's a little bit of VR with, I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah, the grocery was, store. Yeah, the grocery store. So I think of more about like real world situations. Like I think that's what VR could bring to us is getting patients. So for my patients who are... Um, really dizzy and avoiding grocery stores, I can get them in there and kind of increase exposure 
it's a little better than like a YouTube video. And right. so I personally am looking forward to implementing VR as far as reproducing real world situations where maybe patients are having trouble or fearful of going to because of their specific neurologic condition. Nice. Yeah, I like I like the um the thing about the Wii Fit, even though it's not high tech VR, it's something that I can imagine some people still having in, in their homes or some type of video yeah. game something that you're doing to help. Oh, you have this. Okay. Yeah. I can, I can kind of direct you on how to use that in a gamified way of doing your balance exercises, um, enhance engagement, enhance, put a little bit of autonomy potentially, like which games do you want to play? And I can, I can design our program around that. Yeah, definitely. Like nothing's going to replace our exact dosing, but there's a lot coming out. Like if you ever go to Tuckapalooza at CSM, I'm mm -hmm. sure that's going to be all, all sorts of good VR this year. Right. Um, grow, growing every year. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's always some kind of VR there. And it's really cool. I guess it's what type and is it affordable to the clinician and the patient? Right, right. Yeah, access, access. So considering the evolving nature of telehealth, how do you foresee it being integrated into standard practice for neurologic physical therapy in the future? No, that's a that's a good question. I think that I'm not sure, you know, will how much will it continue to evolve and how much will it become standard practice? What was really interesting in working with this task force is we reached out to clinicians and residency programs and mm -hmm. asked, uh, we were trying to compile a video library so we could have a lot of examples. And mm -hmm. so first we just reached out to a small group and then we broadened it and we got zero. We got nothing. Oh, and Yeah, it was really interesting. And so what, we started in March of 2021, we're wrapping up, we've basically wrapped up. So over two years of people who really did a lot of what we think did a lot of telehealth, we didn't get that great of response. And people cited, of course, lack of time, which we understand, um, but also cited a little bit of lack of interest, which we found kind of interesting that that, that was a piece. So I, I wonder, you know, is this going to become standard practice? We recommend in our in our paper and and future recommendations that this at least become part of um, students' curriculum so they're exposed to it. Mm -hmm. But from what I see, it it just seems like we've we were doing a lot of it and we've gone back a little bit into the ways that we used to do. I think that hopefully clinicians can see the the benefits of reaching people more often increasing access to high quality care in rural communities, increasing the dosing and how often we could see our people. I know a lot of patients uh, are busy. A lot of, you know, uh, practices are really busy right now. And if we can sneak in short telehealth visits, I think that can be really accessible. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see what becomes kind of standard practice for, for, for neuro telehealth PT. Very interesting. I, I, um, yeah, I like the big, the big areas that you kind of hit on there, like improving overall volume of delivery access for individuals, limited access. So it will be interesting to see what happens now that we're in what we would see as more of a post pandemic world. So yeah, we're not yeah. as acutely, ah, telehealth, let's talk about it all the time where you have to do it to, to survive. Mm -hmm. Um, I do hope that it doesn't fall off because I mean, like I said, in the state I live in something like 40% of people live in a rural area. Yeah. And if, if PT kind of gets less excited about it, then the people that 
end up, I think potentially could get hurt would be, would be those patients that don't have access to high quality care. So definitely. Um, and I think that insurance is going to be a driver too, where Medicare, you know, was they, covering it and now they seem to change their minds and we know all insurance cover or other insurances will follow that as, as well. So that's kind of another piece that might drive our decisions without us making those decisions. So true. Isn't that just the story of a lot of things though? Right. Sure is. Yep. Um, so my next question is, is there any you wish I had asked you about telehealth's role in balance training and fall prevention? No, I think we, I think we covered it. Um, I think, yeah, I don't really think I have too much more to say. You know, the only piece, and this is just kind of for future considerations, is keep an eye on research that's starting to come out. A lot of what happened during COVID is just now being published. Right. Maybe that'll drive a little bit more interest in it. It's coming out now. We do have a course that's coming out very, very soon on the Education Center. So it's both going, There's a. it's a two-part course. One is evaluation and one is treatment. And we really made it a very case study-based course so that right. you can see real-life examples with certain populations. And we tried to do a different, not necessarily diagnosis, but kind of maybe low-functioning, mid- and high-functioning a patient with a neurologic condition. So you can see how the traffic light would work as well with those, those patients. Um, yeah. So I think that's, that's kind of what I hope people take out of this and are able to look forward to in the future. Great. Thanks for sharing. And then lastly, for listeners that are either clinicians or researchers considering incorporating telehealth, what practical steps or recommendations would you offer um, for those individuals? Yeah. So first, you know, if you're not doing it now, just think about trying it a little bit. If somebody comes into your clinic and you want to see them twice a week and they say, I can't do that. I don't have time. You know, maybe you could offer them a hybrid model. Why don't you come one, you know, one time to see me and the second time we'll just do a quick visit on your phone. And I think that's yeah. a way we can gain a little bit more interest or, um, you know, that that I I would challenge everybody to to try that for patients that maybe don't want to commit to the full program you're recommending. And then just take a peek at the website. We really worked hard to get resources out there to make them very clinician user-friendly. So peek through that if you have time. Uh, and then, you know, hopefully we can reach you once this course comes up, because sometimes I think if you can, it's sometimes hard to conceptualize if you haven't done it yet. I, I assume most of us has have dabbled in it in a little bit, but, you know, check out that course when it comes out, because then you can see so many different examples if you're worried about doing telehealth with someone who, you know, maybe is at a high risk of falling. We have that in that course to show you how it can be done. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Sarah. Um, so my last, my last two, couple questions are a little bit more fun. So this is the <laughs> fall special interest group. So first question is what have you fallen in love with in the world of PT? Oh, I mean, if it wasn't obvious, I'm in love with doing vestibular rehab and treating people with dizziness, especially the really hard to fix dizziness. So that is my love. And I hope to continue to be able to do it. And I'm lucky to be able to do it. Um, so that, yeah, that's my true love. Nice. Wonderful. That's a, it's an area that I love as well. So I can definitely understand that. Yeah. And a non, I mean, it could be PT or non-PT, but question, but how do you keep it all in balance? <laughs> what are you doing when you're not on task forces and doing presentations? How do you keep your, your life in balance to, to keep that love excited? Well, my other, my other love is traveling. So getting out as much as I can to see the world around us. We 
are fortunate to be able to see a lot of cool places with our kids. My my ultimate goal is to be a physiotherapist living somewhere else in the world and doing therapy elsewhere. Um, but until that can happen and with two young kids in school, probably not right now. Um, mm-hmm. Continuing to I, see, to- I see why telehealth is an interest of yours now. Yes, right? That, <laughs> but in 2018, I was talking with a coworker. I was like, we could go live. Like, I love Thailand. We could, I was like, we could go live in Thailand and do telehealth. We just have to be, you know, awake in the middle of the night. So that was our dream back then. So that's probably still <laughs> a dream is to somehow do telehealth in a different country, maybe back here to the States. I'm not sure how that would work. <laughs> um, I, think, I think I had dreams that involved being up in, up in the middle of the night 10 years ago as well. And those <laughs> are less exciting to me these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. Yeah, really. So, so yeah, maybe someday I'll be living somewhere else doing telehealth. Stay tuned. Yeah, that would be exciting. I'm going to put that on my things you're interested to see if that happens. Yeah. (laughs) Well, uh, thank you again, Sarah Oxboros, for coming to talk to us today about your October 2023 work with the ANPT Telehealth Task Force in the article, Addressing Opportunities and Barriers in Telehealth Neurologic Physical Therapy. Um, I'm excited to see the course when it comes out. I'll make sure to share information about how to access everything in the show notes. And do you have anything to plug anyone thing that you want people to check out? No, just, I just, the, the task force, this group worked really hard. I think, you know, they were such a good group. So thank you to all those members you earlier mentioned. They put a lot of, a lot of their time and effort into this task force over the last year, two years. We had ended up being two years. We we're supposed to only be a year and a half. So it shows you how much work they put in. Um, and I'm excited to see most of it on the website now and have the course come out so everybody can see all the hard work that we've done. Well, great. Thank you again for your time. And I look forward to seeing all the work that uh, we get to see out of that group in the next couple of years. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast of the Balance and Falls Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. For more information, please see the show notes or visit neuropt.org. Thank you.